Welcome to the Freedom and Captivity podcast, a podcast about abolitionist visioning and organizing in Maine. Today, we have a conversation on abolition from within with a question mark. We'll be talking about abolitionist possibilities from within Maine's criminal legal system. Today, we're gonna be talking with Natasha Irving, who is the district attorney for District 6. Tina Natto, who is a criminal defense lawyer and the executive director of the Maine Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. And the conversation today will be moderated by Michael Kibere, Policy Counsel of the ACLU of Maine. Thanks so much, all of you, for joining us. Michael, thank you. Thank you so much, Catherine, for uh, setting up this interview. Uh, thank you, Tina and Natasha, for uh, agreeing to be a part of it. I've uh, followed both your work over the last few years and have been inspired in different ways by both your work. Um, I um, saw Tina a couple of years ago interview one of our mutual heroes, Michelle Alexander, in uh, a discussion of Michelle Alexander's um, pathbreaking and hugely influential book, The New Jim Crow, which uh, popularized the um, notion that our criminal legal system is very, very deeply broken. Um, Tina and uh, Natasha, I know, have been thinking their entire adult lives about how to fix this uh, system, and they've taken different paths. Uh, I will start by asking Tina Nato, who I consider to be one of Maine's finest lawyers, legal minds, criminal defense lawyers, uh, why she became a criminal defense lawyer. Tina. Thank you, Michael. Um, so that's a great question. I grew up in very far northern Maine uh, in a little town called Madawaska. Um, we grew up quite poor and I did grow up with a good sense from my mom about what justice meant, what fairness meant um, and things like that. As far as becoming a lawyer, that didn't happen until much later on. Um, I was a teacher in Mississippi for years, a high school teacher. I saw some of my students get uh, enmeshed in the juvenile system down there, which is horrific, and the adult system as well, which is also horrific. Um, I saw my students struggle um, with systemic racism and poverty, generational poverty, and lots of things over the course of those years, and just didn't feel that they were getting a fair shake in life. And my work as a teacher, I felt, was kind of limited. Um, after I left that position, I returned home to my family for a bit, and I worked as a newspaper reporter, and, and I thought, I can't work for $8.50 an hour for the rest of my life. Um, and the small town newspaper was not um, professionally fulfilling for me at the time. So I ended up applying to law school. I went to Maine Law. And in studying the criminal legal system, um, especially through professors like Professor Czar, I just became pretty aware pretty early on that this is not a fair system, that it disproportionately impacts poor people, obviously, um, but that it's really targeted um, against people of color from its inception in America. Um, and from there, I did work at the Cumberland County DA's office for about a year when I was um, in my third year of law school. And I was a student intern prosecutor. And I saw firsthand how, 
unfair the system was, how much even a small conviction can really derail someone's life, how much a few days in jail can really disrupt someone's life and services and family. Um, and it was just something that I didn't want to be a part of anymore. Um, after law school, I was a law clerk and then I took a job in a private firm doing criminal defense work that was not appointed work, but I did some high level criminal defense work for a few years. And when I had the chance, um, I left that position and a few months later opened my own firm. So since 2015, I've focused exclusively on criminal defense, um, almost exclusively on who cannot afford counsel and who are facing the risk of jail time or some other devastating collateral consequence like immigration or something like that. So that's where I guess I came to this position. I hope that answers the question. Absolutely, thank you, it, it does. And before I turn to Natasha, um, I'll ask you one more question, um, which is, you wear at least two hats in uh, Maine's criminal legal system. One as a criminal defense lawyer, which you've just described. Another as executive director of the Maine Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, or MACDL. Um, you know, when I think of the criminal defense lawyer, I think of a person who uh, tries to change the system one client at a time, one case at a time. But the scale of the problems seems to me to require something bigger. Um, do either of these uh, roles, your role as a criminal defense lawyer, or executive director of MACDL, allow you to take, try to take the problem on um, in a bigger way than one client at a time? And if so, how? So I, I understand the, the popular maybe conception of, of criminal defense attorney as like system change advocate. I don't experience that in reality. I think there are a significant number of people who practice criminal defense in Maine who do want to see bigger changes, who do want to see um, their work affect the larger problems in the criminal legal system. But I will say that there are, are also a significant number of criminal defense lawyers who represent their clients, and that's the scope of their investment. Um, criminal defense lawyers in Maine and probably throughout the country come from a wide variety of political and ideological backgrounds, um, and that sometimes is reflected in the work, sometimes not. Um, I think in my role as MACDL executive director, the way I have reimagined that role, I think I've had the opportunity to work with other stakeholders and people in the system to try to effectuate um, large scale change in Maine. I don't think that was something that was necessarily being done before I became the executive director of MACDL. MACDL has long taken um, positions on policy and legislative proposals that might have systemic impact, but not necessarily. So I do think I'm trying to push the organization in a way that will be uh, more impactful, but at the same time, recognizing that MACDL itself is not an abolitionist organization, even though I have abolitionist views, I cannot on behalf of MACDL um, kind of perpetuate those, at least not yet. You know, if MACDL decides to take a stand on that position, I would be happy to embrace it on their behalf, but we're just not quite there yet. It's, um, it's a diverse group of people as far as what their belief systems are. So we need to work on that, I think. Thank you, Tina. I'm gonna come back to um, your mention of abolitionism, but now I'll ask Natasha Irving, a prosecutor 
why in the world she would try and join a group of people whom progressives and liberals over the last decade and a half or so have come to revile the prosecutor, the person who sends people to jail, uh, the person whom many blame for making the United States the world's and perhaps history's leading jailer of uh, human beings, uh, Natasha? Well, that is that is quite a good question. Um, and there are days, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, there are days where, um, you know, I, I feel like I'm pulling my hair out uh, if I'm not actually pulling my hair out. Um, but I mean, I am, I'm a, you know, I'm somebody that comes from a pretty left-leaning uh, uh, community, uh, family, um, and I always have been, uh, you know, from a very democratic family, um, democratic party affiliated family, um, but also uh, left-leaning in the sense that my father was uh, the union negotiator for his school, uh, uh, for, sorry, his school union. Um, I myself used to be a a uh, labor organizer and a political organizer. Um, and I did those things to really bring about systemic change in systems, um, you know, hoping that, uh, for instance, with political organizing with the Democratic Party, that you have Democrats elected who would then um, be, uh, have a critical mass to make good policy decisions at the legislature, for instance, um, or in the federal government. So, um, I, I have that background where, you know, if I think something's broken, I always think that there is a uh, there's a way to go about fixing it on a on a holistic level. So I thought uh, when I was practicing as a criminal defense attorney, family attorney, I did um, emancipation work. I did um, uh, landlord tenant uh, disputes representing uh, tenants, though I think I did represent a landlord at one point. Um, so I, I did a lot of work with a lot of poor people. And that's um uh, in, in this area of Maine that I live in, District 6, which is um, the Midcoast region from Waldo County, Knox County, Lincoln, and Sagadahawk, we have a lot of rural poverty. And what I would uh, see in my criminal practice, my criminal defense practice every day was that, you know, my clients were ill, uh, mentally ill, addicted, um, if not both, uh, definitely one or the other, um, almost entirely. Um, but they were also all poor. And it, it just seemed... Um, that our entire criminal justice system seemed to be geared towards um, prosecuting poor people. Um, and again, mostly for being sick, um, either with mental illness or with um, substance use disorder, but also uh, suffering from other uh, you know, social ailments, for instance, uh, homelessness. We have very, very poor um, uh, public housing, um, very, 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 very few options for low-income housing in the Midcoast area. And um, a lot of folks who literally don't have a safe, stable place to live. So how are they going to get their lives together in a, when they're being prosecuted criminally for, um, for any number of things? So I thought uh, when when it came time for the election, uh, or you know, when the election was gearing up, um, I uh, Jeff Rushlaw, who had been district attorney for many years, for about twenty years here in the Mid Coast, had become a judge, and there was a, a, a the. Deputy District Attorney John Lieberman had been appointed um, uh, District Attorney, and I thought that it was a real opportunity for um, for a challenge. So I took my experience doing uh, you know political work, and I decided to throw my hat in the ring. And I believed, and I still believe, though again there are days that I want to pull my hair out and I think, what was I thinking? But there are more days that I feel like I'm able to um, make a difference, um, though things, uh, the, you know, change even, even as, um, you know, 
even as the district attorney, I feel like um, yeah, there were immediate changes that we were able to make, but systemic change takes longer because we run into, and, and I'll, so addressing your question, the reviled prosecutor that got us to where we are today, right? Um, and and I, I do understand that, uh, and I, I, that's, I shared in that uh, critique I will say in this role, I've probably moderated my uh, my disgust for prosecution more. But what I've seen and what I hear often um, from you know public safety, uh, from prosecutors who are still in my office that were that had been here previously, is just and and I and and even the new folks that have come on from a different perspective, that the lack of um, mental health treatment, the lack of substance use treatment. The lack of safe and stable housing is something that, you know, our office uh, takes an interest in um, trying to make sure that folks are getting uh, taking care of the root causes uh, of what has brought them into the criminal justice system. And so, yes, prosecutors have driven incarceration rates. They have driven the policies regarding sentencing. Um, however, I think the fact that we have so um uh, underfunded mental health treatment, children's mental health treatment, um, especially I think the juvenile system um, is could be almost entirely uh, replaced um, with uh, mental with just with public mental health uh, services. Um, the fact that we don't have this social safety net and the fact that the legislature year after year after year or session after session after session uh, created more criminal offenses, including things that we wouldn't ever imagine should be criminal. For instance, driving with an expired uh, with an expired registration um, over 150 days, driving with a suspended license because you couldn't pay fines. Um, and I will add that from my perspective, it's not just the system of incarceration that is so destructive to the community. It's also the system of fines that bury um, hardworking um, folks in my region um, under fines that they'll never be able to pay. A fine that for me is an inconvenience uh, can mean the difference between eviction and housing for another person. It's absolutely unacceptable. So I think um, that the prosecutor has a huge role in um, deciding how we use our discretion, but we are uh, looking to the, uh, to the state, to the community, and to public health infrastructure infrastructure, um, housing infrastructure, uh, without any, without anything there. Um, and, and that's where I see a lot of um, the future as far as my role goes, is trying to, trying to work with uh, policymakers at the state level to fund, um, to fund those systems that are so important to addressing the root cause of you know some some crimes uh, that are dangerous to the community or to the individual, um, and also to decriminalize these traffic offenses, especially that are absolutely uh, not dangerous. And um, what's dangerous is burying somebody under boatloads of fines um, or suspending their license so they can't get to work. Interesting. Uh, thanks a lot for that answer. It seems like your time as a criminal uh, pro prosecutor, as a prosecutor, can be divided into days, as you said, that make you want to pull your hair out, and then days when you feel like you're making a difference. Would you mind going into detail about the first type of day, the day that makes you want to pull your hair out? I'm trying to understand, and I know listeners want to understand, uh, what the barriers are to a progressive prosecutor trying to change the system from within. Oh, sure. Um, uh, an example of a day that I want to 
uh, you know, one of the most difficult evenings, nights, uh, and days at work that I had was probably last year. It was last year. It was during COVID. Um, and we had a young person um, that had uh, been brought to the hospital. She had already been involved with the criminal system, with the ju criminal juvenile system, because she had been assaultive uh, towards um uh, I, I think teachers at school, um, it, she had been assaultive to, to, to numerous parties. And eventually my juvenile prosecutor filed, um, um, uh, a juvenile petition, um, with this young person. And, um, this is a, a very young woman, uh, very, a young, a child, I mean, you know, a child, somebody that, um, I believe is 14 years old. And, um, she clearly had undiagnosed, uh, mental illness of some sort. Um, and there had been a lot of work before the petition and then after the petition to get her into the treatment that she needed. And unfortunately, in the region of the state that she was in, uh, she would be brought to the ER by her family um, when she would become assaultive. And um, she had received some treatment and then she had, she had been she had gone out of state for treatment. She had been, you know, DHHS had worked with her to get her treatment along the way. And again, taking a 14 year old and shipping them out of state is not, uh, is not ideal. And that was, I believe, before any criminal petition had been filed. Um, and so one day um, I get a call really early in the morning. I think, um, you know, four, maybe could have been two o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, in the, in the middle of the night. And um, that there was this young woman that had been kicked out of the ER um, and she'd been brought to the ER uh, by her family because she was um, assaultive, um, uh, out of control, um, unable to be calmed down, unable to be soothed. And the ER was telling um, my criminal uh, or sorry, my juvenile prosecutor and the JCCO um, that she was going to be kicked out of the ER. And they were begging, you know, the medical staff not to kick her out because, you um, um, because basically, you know, I mean, the alternative, there was no alternative, right? The family couldn't take her home. They said they wouldn't take her home, couldn't put a child on the street. Um, and, um, what ended up happening was that the ER did kick her out and, um, they, they, they had decided through their, um, evaluation that this was a behavioral problem, um, and not a psychiatric problem. Um, and she went to the Belfast police department and sat in the police department um, in a basically a conference room all night with an officer, the JCCO, um, who was the juvenile correction um, officer, basically kind of like a probation officer for children. And um, they waited it out with her not knowing what was going to happen. Was she going to calm down? Um, uh, the family couldn't take her. And the uh, so the options that would have been available to us at that time uh, typically would have been she could be taken to Long Creek or she could literally we could continue to try and find a placement for her with nothing available. Luckily, this child did calm down and the parents were able to take her back home. Um, the belief is that this child has some sort of autism, um, undiagnosed autism spectrum disorder, and um, potentially, obviously, there could be things going on in the home. Um, there's difficulties, but, uh, you know, obviously with, with, this, with this child's psychiatric care. But what was so alarming to me is that we had this team of people who are all in law enforcement, right? I mean, these are all people that, oh, let's ship her off to Long Creek. Well, Long Creek wouldn't take her because of COVID anyway. But in the, the end of the day, we don't want to send a child who's sick 
to Long Creek, we want to send her to care. Um, this story ends with me calling the um, ER and speaking with the physician um, and asking why that was a, a not medical malpractice. The next time she was brought to the ER, she wasn't able to stay longer and, and was uh, able to be treated at an emergency room level. But the problem with this system, right, is that there is no system. There is no system for a sick uh, 14-year-old girl who needs um, help and compassion uh, from her community. I think there's a probably agreement throughout the community that this child should be treated um, uh, with, um, with medical and psychiatric treatment, not with a criminal justice system. But unfortunately, um, those are the types of issues dealing um, with these children who are ill, mentally ill, um, some that have significant substance use disorder, who are significantly dangerous to themselves and others. Um, and there is no safe place to, to bring these children to get treatment. So those are the days that um, uh, my, my juvenile prosecutor and I, you know, are really devastated. And not to mention um, the JCCO that works on that case and the Belfast uh, Police Department um, personnel or working with that individual. And um, and we all can see very clearly that we just need to fund some children's mental health. So I'd say those are the most frustrating uh, days because there is literally no solution um, uh, that we can plug someone into. Um, it wouldn't be easy anyway, but having some type of uh, mental health facility. And I'll say, you know, to juxt the juxtaposition is that when we have an adult who's severely mentally ill, right? There's a Riverview. Um, we don't have a Riverview for children. We don't have that last ditch attempt to take care of a sick individual the way that they should be treated. Um, uh, so so that that would be my my greatest example of, um, of pulling your hair out in the middle of the night. Interesting. So it seems like being a prosecutor has given you a detailed and in-depth understanding of how bad our healthcare system and our mental health services are. Um, what about the days when you feel like you've made a difference? What have you done that a more traditional prosecutor in your position uh, wouldn't have? Oh, sure. Um, so we've been able to, especially in the northern half of the district, we had this, this wonderful organization called Restorative Justice Project in Midcoast, Maine. And these are some of the best restorative justice practitioners that you're ever going to be worldwide uh, in all history, I swear. So um, so lucky to have them. Um, and for instance, I've uh, um, uh, I've just come back from maternity leave, maternity leave in April, um, or I, I guess probably the end of March, and I've transitioned from kind of working at home um, to working in my Rockland office. And I'm going to be the person that gets to have the um, unique responsibility of literally being our restorative justice uh, coordinating prosecutor. Now, it'd be great to have, you know, a staff prosecutor that was hired to do this. We don't have the funding for it. Um, but I'm going to be able to be really hands-on and making sure more of our cases that are um, ripe for uh, restorative justice are uh, funneled into restorative justice and be part of the process to the extent that a prosecutor should be. I shouldn't be sitting in um, reparative circles, um, but I certainly um, am able to direct cases, uh, you know, with an eye on which cases can use, for instance, circular sentencing. So we can send, um, you know, somebody that's... Uh, for, for instance, the latest one that I uh, that I have on my uh, desk right now is um, a young woman, um, not super young, but you know, a younger woman uh, that is uh, it's her seventh lifetime theft, and it's a shoplifting event, 
And um, it could be charged as a felony, but we've charged it as a misdemeanor. And we are sending it to restorative justice. And I, that one I have uh, flagged as something that could use circle sentencing. So she can she can go and use this process. Hopefully the victim will be um, present, but if not, um, it's, a, it's a retail theft. So we can use a, um, uh, we can use a surrogate um, in in that uh, in that circle, and the circle itself will be able to decide what good outcomes and bad outcomes in the system are. And for instance, other types of work that I can do, uh, you know, taking this role on personally, is that I can decide which cases we won't charge at all and um, will be deflected straight out of the system into restorative justice. So that that's the kind of you know. Um, I, my personal belief is that we need to really beef up alternatives to um, the criminal justice system that work better for communities. And I think restorative justice projects that are community-based, community-led um, are really, you know, what, where I would look um, to divert and deflect as many cases as possible. Um, so, so that's that's something that's a, you know, it, it's a work in progress, but it it it's. Um, it's the kind of change that I ran, you know, I spent a year away from my family so I could do this type of work. Um, so that is fulfilling. Before I um, ask Tina a question, I do want to ask you a final question about what it's like to be a prosecutor uh, based on something I've heard repeatedly um, when I lived in Massachusetts and also here, which is that prosecutors tend to be rewarded um, based on the amount of convictions they secure. And that incentive structure nudges prosecutors toward uh, securing as many convictions as possible. Have you found that to be true? Well, um, we'll find out because I'm up for re-election um, in 2022. So I will say that, yeah, I have received quite a bit of criticism from people that read in the newspaper that we've dismissed cases. Um, and unfortunately, you know, the newspaper reports, you know, when uh, somebody's been charged and they report when there's been a dismissal, they report which counts have been dismissed, but they don't report, for instance, that somebody's been in treatment for a year. Um, they don't report, for instance, with an OUI that they had dismissed, that the woman that had been um, charged with an OUI had uh, the next day uh, initiated treatment. And this wasn't a woman that had, you know, uh, a lot of disposable income to throw at treatment. Um, this was a woman that that uh, you know was a single mother and and had to work really hard to make it work, but she was able to take care of herself and her and her needs, and in, in turn that takes care of the community, right? If we have folks that aren't driving um, under the influence, then we're all safer, and she's safer, right? No, I, I assume most people don't want to have a, the type of alcohol um, dependency issue where they would even consider getting behind the wheel um, impaired. So that woman um, was able to get immediately into treatment. So, you know, we didn't decide on an outcome right away on her deferred disposition. And eventually uh, she became uh, in, you know, while this case was pending, she became, you know, a, a recovery coach. And um, now she's helping other people who've been in her shoes uh, get the treatment that they need so their communities can be safe. And so they can be safe and their children can be safe. Um, so they didn't see all the hard work um, that Megan put into, um, to her recovery. Um, they didn't see the hard work that she put into other people's recovery and how she really owned, um, uh, you know, the, the, the dangerous public safety issue that she had created by driving drunk. Nobody saw any of that. And, um, and what I get a call about is that somebody reads in the paper that I dismissed an OUI. So I'll stand by that. 
any day of the week and twice on Sunday, because that's a person who is not going to, uh, and hopefully, I mean, a recurrence uh, happens and relapse happens, but this is a person I feel much more uh, safe um, uh, having prosecuted, right? I, I feel like we we were able to, to help with that carrot, right? Um, I think that that um, was much, uh, or and again, I mean, I could be proven wrong, um, but I believe um, that seeing that work that that person put in and that change in her life probably made a much bigger difference than a $500 fine and 150 day loss of license. Um, and, and that's what I need to be able to explain to my community members to see if they'll uh, give me the opportunity to keep doing this work. Thank you. Um, I will come back to you. But I want to turn back to Tina now and um, ask Tina, have you ever litigated against um, District Attorney uh, Natasha Irving, your fellow uh, interviewee here? Well, before I answer that question, I just want to get back to something that Natasha talked about, which I hear a lot from a lot of different people, which is decrying the lack of funding into mental health, substance use services, particularly for children. Yeah, there is a lack of funding for those things. And there's a very good reason for that. It's because over and over, Maine, from its chief executive down, have made policy decisions to fund the things that they think secure public safety. Namely, they fund prisons, um, including a youth prison that incarcerates 30 children each year to the tune of almost $19 million. So I too share the concern that there is no funding that's being directly funneled for children's mental health services or children's health care or children anything. But I would like to see from the prosecutors in this state, the same ones who say we have no other place to put them, and that means children and adults, to be advocating for a redistribution of the resources that are always available, which is to fund the police fund the jails, and fund the prisons. And every time there's uh, rumblings about there not being enough funding for the jails or the prisons or the police, we need to start considering why do we need those things so badly? Why are the prisons or the jails overrun? That's because of policy decisions and prosecutorial decisions made on the ground on up. So I just had to respond to the funding thing because it's definitely something that comes up over and over. We decide where the money goes. We're making the wrong choices. Um, as far as uh, litigating a case against Natasha's district attorney, uh, I have not. Um, I do not really practice up in the mid coast. Um, I have uh, many friends who do practice up there, but I have not had the pleasure of having a case up there since Natasha has taken over as DA. Thank you. And before asking you my next question, I will add to your point about how the state uh, is eager to fund prisons and police uh, and uh, to some extent prosecution, but not e eager to fund mental health and behavioral health services and the rest of the continuum of care, is that uh, changes since to the income tax since the uh, LePage era in Maine have cost our state hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, easily um, half a billion dollars, which is more than 10 times the amount Long Creek takes. Long Creek should be closed, absolutely. Um, I know you both have a strong position on that. 
and so do I, and so does the organization I work for. But we also have a fiscally conservative state that refuses to raise revenue. And uh, I hope uh, that's on listeners' radars as well. I um, want to ask you, Tina, based on your experience litigating against different kinds of prosecutors in Maine and being executive director of MACDL, do you think this, uh, um, uh, the hope that people uh, project onto progressive prosecutors is justified? Do you think that it is possible to change the criminal legal system from within as a prosecutor? My concern, I think, is that progressive prosecution and the language around it has become very politically acceptable and encouraged by the left without really grappling with what all that means. Um, I think it's very easy to co-opt language of liberation and use it in a way that seems to advance a progressive agenda. I am of the opinion that I think anyone who's involved in the criminal legal system would agree with me. The prosecutor is bar none, the most important person in the system as we have set it up. Um, They decide who to charge, what to charge, whether to ask for bail, what to recommend for a sentence, what to dismiss, um, what to divert, as Natasha said about restorative justice. They make all these huge choices. So I understand um, the belief that a progressive prosecutor could be the answer for systemic change within a district, a state, et cetera. And to an extent, I think that could be true. I just think that prosecutors are operating in a system that is so fundamentally flawed and broken, where the default is imprisonment, where the default is incarceration. It's not, I'm trying to think, there's there's a lot of cult of personality around progressive prosecutors in the national level with Kim Fox and Larry Krasner you know, Marilyn Mosby, we have all these progressive prosecutors who are doing some good work, but they're still entrenched in the system that they criticize. They still depend on votes to keep their positions. And I have not yet seen a prosecutor stand up and say, I wish that I I was not needed. I wish that I'm going to advocate for things that defund me, that defund the people that funnel folks into my system, namely the police. Um, I'm not seeing that. I'm seeing changes that might impact some people positively. But there's definitely a line, a hard line, that I think most people who would consider themselves progressive prosecutors, or at least open-minded prosecutors, they're not going to consider themselves progressive, that they're not willing to cross. And I think that comes down to what they consider to be someone who is violent versus nonviolent, what they consider to be a drug trafficker versus a drug user. And they use those lines to arbitrarily determine whether or not someone is worthy of rehabilitation, second chances, leniency, mercy, whatever. Um, And that is, I think, in part because they are political positions. And in order to keep your position, you cannot, in in the current climate, be advocating for the liberation of people that others might find 
distasteful. Um, so I'm very conflicted about looking to progressive prosecutors as the answer. I just, I just don't see that as being the answer for much of anything. Very uh, thought-provoking response. Uh, Natasha, I'll turn back to you and ask you for what your response is to that series of reflections. I think that um, Tina makes a lot of really, really astute points. Um, and I'm not going to say that I disagree um, with what she has to say. Um, I think that the, and I, people say progressive prosecutor, I'm going to just put out there that I, and I'm not a big semantic person, um, but I, I like to think of it as kind of a reform prosecutor because I work with reform prosecutors around the country, some of whom are conservative Republicans or Republicans, um, because there's other ways people can come at um, thinking the system is really, really broken, right? And the Republican Party uh, has a, a history of believing in things like uh, limited government, uh, fiscal responsibility, um, and, and where is the government uh, less limited than when you can actually take someone's freedom away? Um, or when is when are we fiscally more irresponsible when we spend uh, a ton of money uh, to make somebody uh, more violent and more dangerous um, by sending them to jail than they were when they went in? So I think Tina is uh, uh, makes a lot of really, really important points. I'll say I think that the progressive or reform prosecutor is one part of an important, um, uh, obviously what I think is, you know, you know, my, you know, it's my career. Um, it's what I spend my time doing, but, um, it's, uh, a, a really important reform, probably the most, well, one of the very most important reforms that we can partake in, in the United States of America today. Um, and I think that, you know, I've written down things like violent versus nonviolent and trafficker versus user. And I, think that there is a reckoning that we need to have um, regarding both of those issues. So, so when we're talking about violence versus nonviolence, and I make this distinction all the time when we're talking about cases and when I'm talking about them publicly, when I'm talking about them with our staff. So there's an issue with violent offenders, right? And that's that we're concerned that there's going to be, that that offender could continue to cause violence um, to either their victim or to the public at large. Um, so we, it's really important to make that distinction. Unfortunately, where the you know criminal justice system has gone really out of whack is to not really reflect on where violence comes from. So violence usually comes from violence, probably almost always comes from violence, right? So the people that we're prosecuting as violent offenders uh, are probably almost 100% survivors of violence. They're people that we should be fighting for, um, right? As, as victims and survivors of violence, uh, yet we're using violent means um, to prosecute them. Uh, taking somebody into custody and locking them in a cell is inherently a violent act. Um, so are we doing that for a few hours, a few days, um, a few years, or the rest of their life? And I think that those are really issues that we need to grapple with um, as communities, but we need to grapple with them as a state and as a, as a nation. I personally often believe that looking at other systems that have better outcomes, um, you know, potentially looking at Northern Europe, uh, you know, those are some systems that we could learn a lot from um, where we treat, uh, I am somebody who believes that we do have to have places to put folks who are truly dangerous, but those places should be humane and they should be geared towards um, making 
people less violent, uh, helping people become less violent. And, and and for some folks, I will say I've, I've spent uh, some you know time at the Maine State Prison with folks who have committed very, very violent acts and are not dangerous people uh, today. Um, there is to some extent, I mean, these are folks that are survivors of violence. They've uh, they have not to some extent, they're all survivors of violence, survivors of trauma. Um, so we, we really need to, um, understand my personal belief is, you know, we sentence people to 50 years for violent act because we're so horrified, disgusted, and angry. Um, and, and because we believe it's justice for a victim. Um, but many, many folks who commit violent crimes, um, are able to, uh, uh to get the type of trauma treatment that they need in order to be productive um, citizens, but also in order to be safe citizens. Um, and I've seen it with my own eyes. I think secondly, you know, the idea between a trafficker and a user, this is an absolute red herring um, because almost every single uh, drug user that's addicted, has an out of control substance use disorder is going to traffic in one way or another. And the way that we currently prosecute drug crimes in the state of Maine, and I think probably throughout most of the country, right? Imagine most, almost every, in almost every incident, is that we do make this distinction between trafficker and user, and um, and we need to understand, um, you know, what, you know, we need to understand the reality of drugs. Um, that drugs and drug use and substance use disorder is a is a, is part of the human experience, and we need to really work at mitigating the harm on a global level. And I mean everything from, you know, the person who's using and making sure that what they're using is safe uh, to the person that lives below the United States border, um, who is um, a, a survivor or not uh, a victim of violence. Um, so I think that Tina makes some really, really good points that the system is, you know, it is just, it is absolutely broken. Um, it's not productive in the sense that, you know, what we should be trying, what, in my opinion, the system should be used for is public safety um, uh, and accountability to some extent, though, again, I'm a big believer in diverting um, uh, issues um, of, you know, victimization often into a restorative approach, which has a, a better outcome uh, in the end. Um, and, and, really upholds the values of our communities instead of, you know, locking folks in cells to make them worse, uh, worse for the wear. So I, I again, I, I, I agree with what Tina has to say, but I, I do think, you know, I think that we're at the point where everybody in the system needs to dig in and uh, be geared towards real change. And the prosecutor is one part of that. And uh, I, I, I hear Tina when she says that she doesn't know a lot of prosecutors progressive or reform prosecutors that get up and say, I want to put myself out of business. Um, I think there's always going to be a business, right, for um, uh, public safety, right? I mean, obviously, I don't think there's ever that's ever going to go away uh, completely. But I, I do think that we should be gearing ourselves towards healing instead of towards recidivism, which is what which is what the system creates right now. Thank you, uh, Natasha, especially for your thoughts on the spuriousness of the distinctions between trafficker and user or violent and nonviolent. I think that can't be restated enough. In our final 10 minutes, I want to turn back to Tina. Uh, Tina, earlier you said that MACDL, the main association of criminal defense lawyers, is not an abolitionist organization. Uh, what does it mean to be abolitionist? Are you an abolitionist? 
Um, what is the difference between the original abolitionists of the 19th century and abolitionists today? <laughs> it sounds like a college thesis. Um, so, right, MACDOL is not an abolitionist organization in that MACDOL is tasked with certain things, including providing legal training for our members and advocating for certain positions on uh, proposed bills and things like that, um, and just general support of our members uh, in their practices uh, as criminal defense lawyers. I think abolitionist means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And from my perspective, where I see it is funding and creating the things we need to ensure that not that long down the road, we don't need to be chaining and caging people to fool ourselves into thinking that we're more safe. Um, so, it's hard. It's, it, this, is a, this is a funding issue, but it's also a moral issue. What are the things that are actually important to us? Is it more important to incarcerate people thinking that we're preventing future harm? Or is it more important to do the things at the front end that might prevent that harm from happening in the first place? Um, I think there's a misconception um, that most people who would consider themselves abolitionists think that we just need to open all the prisons and jails right now and, you know, deal with it. I don't think people who are thinking about this really thoughtfully and in kind of like the bigger picture really ascribe to that. Um, I, I can see why that would be politically dead in the water, but also potentially dangerous because we don't have the systems in place to provide for the things that people need to prevent that future harm outside of the carceral system. Because again, we've made funding choices for decades and centuries now. Um, so yes, I would consider myself an abolitionist. I do consider the work I do with individual clients not necessarily a part of that. Um, I'm trying to, to avoid jail and prison time for sure for them, but I'm also operating in a very constrained system. Um, so my individual client advocacy, I don't think is necessarily part of my abolitionist vision, though it definitely drives it. Um, my experience working with clients has definitely made me see how just broken and futile and cruel, just horribly cruel our current system is. And if there's things we can do to help keep our community safer and healthier that does not involve prisons and cops. Um, I'm all for it. So I guess that's where I come down on abolition. Uh, thank you, Tina. And uh, the same question to you, Natasha. Are you an abolitionist? Does the uh, term, does the concept mean anything to you? Yeah, um, I would consider myself an abolitionist. I, I would say that um, I think Tina put it really really well, uh, as usual, um, that, um, uh, that, you know, it means different things to different people. Um, but that I don't know many abolitionists, um, or if any, maybe one or two, but you know, very few that are just like open up the jails and prisons and let everybody out. Um, it is more about this puzzle, um, where, um, you know, we're trying to shift these pieces around, 
um, in my opinion, right, um, we're spending, you know, Tina said $19 million a year on Long Creek, right, to have 30 children um, there. And I, I do believe we need a locked facility uh, for, for, for children in, in very, very seldom uh, circumstances of, of very, very um, uh, uh, serious violence, right? I think we don't want to hold them over and keep them in a facility um, with adults. Um, but that is, uh, you know, less than a handful every year. Um, and there could be an alternative that was um, um, not so uh, clearly um, a prison for children, right? And the rest of those children really should be in in treatment. But for adults also, I mean, I think that, that you know, I mean, of course we want to treat children better, in my opinion, um, because they're children and children are really special people. But all people are, you know, are uh, unique um, and, and, and special and they have inherent worth. And when you lock them in a cage, um, it sends a message that they aren't worth anything. They're not part of our community. Um, and then we welcome them back, right? By saying you can't get a job. You can't get housing, you can't get student loans. Um, um, we put them on probation and tell them that you need to do X, Y, and Z. Um, uh, we take their children away um, in DHHS child protective uh, cases. Um, we do a lot to tell them that they are not one of us. They are not part of our society. And I think that we would be much better served to being realistic about uh, why people end up uh, committing crimes, um, why people end up committing violence, why people uh, have uh, out of control substance use disorder. Um, I think we would be better, uh, I think it would be more rational uh, to think it through instead of putting people um, in jails and prisons where they come out less safe than they went in. Jails and prisons are inherently um, uh, trauma, right? We're, we are sending people and they're becoming re-traumatized uh, by the system. And we need, I, I do believe we do need to have jails and prisons to some extent, um, but I think that we need to gear them uh, to, the, to the folks that will be housed there, understanding that these are trauma survivors and we need to do everything we can to make them safer um, to themselves and the community. And I also think it means that we have to use jail and prison far, uh, far, far less than we do today and only when it's absolutely necessary. I do think that that takes so much reform of our laws, uh, change in our budgets, change in our tax structure, as you put it, Michael. Um, uh, it, it's gonna take so much uh, that I don't think it's gonna happen today or tomorrow. But I do believe is that part of you know that overarching belief that it's so broken and needs to be rebuilt, it's not gonna happen overnight, is that having people in the role of prosecutor who are thoughtful about these issues um, is important to make sure um, that we're heading towards those goals, um, but I also uh, making sure that we're communicating with the community, making sure they understand that we're really doing what's in everyone's best interest and what they want to see in their community. I don't believe in defunding the police, um, but I do believe in reimagining what our police do and what the role of our public safety officers is. And I believe that uh, because I see it every day with our um, law enforcement officers and a lot of the agencies that I work with that are very thoughtful um, about serving their communities and that they're here to try and, and, and do exactly what I'm trying to do. 
um, in a broken system. Um, but um, I do I do operate in a in a in a, a series of communities that are overarchingly um, Caucasian um, and uh, don't have a ton of diversity. So I think when we're talking about reforming policing, keeping in mind it's a lot easier to talk about the community policing and about um, the reforms that they're doing on the ground because um, we don't have um, police that are one race um, uh, really driving um, carceral rates in our communities of folks that are of a different race. So it's a lot easier for me to be able to say that, um, um, you know, and also I'll acknowledge that I am a white person and it's so, so the, to the extent that um, uh, somebody with a different experience um, would be advocating for defunding the police. Um, you know, I, I, I do not want to criticize anyone's um, perspective uh, because I know that my interaction with police um, in my communities are a lot different than other folks. Um, but that all being said, yes, I, I do consider myself an abolitionist. Um, we need to destroy the system we have, but by building up, um, continuing to build up and replace uh, what our communities um, believe justice is. So I don't think that happens by ending the criminal justice system we have today um, uh, immediately. I think it's a series of thoughtful steps. And I think that it would, um, I think that it would behoove all of us uh, to, to genuinely work together and listen to each other um, and genuinely uh, fund uh, uh, the things that we need to make our communities better, but also a plan to end um, what today is mass incarceration that is completely un, uh, irrational uh, and inhumane. Thank you for that um, thorough answer. We are um, out of time. If uh, you have final words, I'll uh, ask Tina first uh, about the role of race in our criminal legal system. Um, you've touched on Maine's overwhelming whiteness. You've touched on uh, class, you've touched on mental illness, but race and gender have been largely invisible in this conversation. So there are final words about that. And then uh, we will wrap up. Uh, Tina, any uh, response? Thank you, Michael. Um, I think race has to always be part of these conversations because the reality of race and blackness in America is where we get our modern form of policing. And because the lens has always been to patrol black movement, black expression, black being. Um, it's always going to have a disproportionate impact against black people. And that has bled into how we surveil and patrol all sorts of people now. So people from all races are experiencing the harm in different levels that was created by the racist system of policing that was established all those decades ago. Um, we still have, I mean, Maine is overwhelmingly white, but it's not white. And I think that's a misconception that really harms discussions we try to have with legislators and other people who seem to think that when we say systemic racism, we're calling them racist and it shuts down the conversations. Um, but as far as disproportionate impact of our current system on people of color, including native people, including even Hispanic people in this state, but including black people in this state, they are overrepresented in police contacts, arrests, rates of incarceration, and lengths of incarceration. We've seen that explode with the war on drugs, even here in Maine. The percentage of black people 
in our prisons who are serving out very long sentences for drug trafficking is, has grown exponentially. And that's a shame. Um, the war on drugs has also, um, in some ways, narrowed the gender disparity in our criminal legal system, which has always been known as such an overwhelmingly male thing. But we're talking percentages in the hundreds increase of prosecuting and incarcerating women in this state and nationwide for largely issues related to drugs. So the gender and racial inequalities that we're seeing nationwide are definitely brought to bear here in Maine. And there's something that we can no longer hide behind being the whitest and oldest nation, uh, state in the nation. I don't think that plays anymore. I think we have to come to terms with the real harm our systems do disproportionately to people of color, black folk, poor people. I mean, you name it. Um, this is not a colorblind system that we are operating in, and it, real people are harmed in the process. And uh, in our last, thank you so much, Tina, for that um, uh, lucid and, uh, as usual, inspiring description of uh, the reality. Natasha, any final words from you? Uh, well, first, I'd like to acknowledge what Tina said, and it, we, I, the state of Maine absolutely has huge. Uh, disparate racial impacts in our criminal justice system. Um, and my district happens to be, I think, the whitest district in the state. That doesn't mean that we're perfect. Um, we certainly aren't. But as a whole in the state, we have some of the worst disparities anywhere in the country. So I agree. We can't hide behind this. Oh, we're Maine. We're better. I will say we are better in some respects than other states in the nation, certainly. Um, but that doesn't mean it's okay. That doesn't mean that what we're doing is okay. We're still incarcerating more people per capita than Russia. So, um, you know, I, I think that's a problem. Secondly, um, I think the gender issue Tina brings up is um, is absolutely spot on. Um, that we're seeing uh, the the gender uh, gap uh, tighten when it comes to drug trafficking. Um, and I will say from my perspective as a feminist uh, in, in the legal system, that um, women are held to different standards, um, whether they're defendants, whether they're attorneys, whether they're judges. Um, and um, um, in a system that is so uh, reactive, right, to, to charging individuals when we believe there's probable cause or we have a, a case that we can prove beyond a reasonable doubt anywhere in between those two, right? Um, I will say my personal experience is that that does not, um, that does not, uh, that is not the case when it comes to sexual assault um, in our state. And that is a whole nother conversation. But I think um, at least I know that there are people in the system um, that do have those uh, libertarian uh, and abolitionist leanings when, uh, when it comes to uh, allegations that women um, in particular are making uh, regarding sexual assault, especially when those women are addicted, when those women are mentally ill, when those women are survivors of trauma, and when those women aren't walking home from church, basically. So I will leave it at that because, again, that is a discussion for another day. But um, I really am appreciative of everyone's thoughtfulness here because this is, uh, uh, I think, you know, the most important issue uh, in front of us, um, or one of the, the very most important issues in front of us today. Well, thank you both uh, very much. I um, am deeply grateful for uh, your words and your wisdom, and I'll hand it over to Catherine Bestman, who created this uh, opportunity. Catherine. Thank you so much, Michael, Tina, and Natasha, for um, 
for bringing it today. That was a, that was a fantastic conversation. I found myself, you're probably going to hear me in the background on the podcast going, yes, uh-huh. Wow. <laughs> Just learning a lot. Um, uh, a lot for listeners to take in and to consider a lot of resonances with many of the other episodes that are going to be available on this podcast. Uh, so deep gratitude to all three of you for the work that you're doing and moving us towards uh, what, what seemed to be our shared abolitionist goals for a much better future than the situation that we're in right now. This is the Freedom and Captivity podcast. Next week, you can join us for a conversation on confronting surveillance. We're going to be talking with Professor Brendan McQuaid, who's a professor of criminology at the University of Southern Maine and the author of a book called Pacifying the Homeland, Intelligence Fusion and Mass Supervision. We're going to be talking about the Maine Information and Analysis Center, or MIAC, uh, which is a fusion center in Maine that costs the state about a million dollars a year. And we're going to be talking about how Professor McQuaid challenges the use of fusion centers, facial recognition technology, and other forms of state surveillance. This episode, next week's episode, and the other episodes in this series are all available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, the Portland Media Center, and the Freedom and Captivity website. Gratitude to the Portland Media Center for sponsoring this podcast and to the musician Samuel James, whose music opens and closes each episode. Thanks for listening. Say.